on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of the new creation. And that is the first and most important thing to know about Easter. I've been saying this for several weeks. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he rose as the beginning of the new creation. Now, God's plan is to put the whole creation right. And in Jesus' resurrected body, we have the first fruit of the new creation. The resurrected Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. I've been emphasizing this over the last several weeks. And each week, I've explored how Jesus commissioned his followers to implement Jesus' achievement. The achievement of the new creation. We are called as Easter people to work for God's kingdom right here in Harrisonburg and in the valley. Now, how do we do this? How do we work for the kingdom? How do we implement the achievement of Jesus in the cross and in the resurrection? Three uh, fundamental ways. Number one, we do this by working for God's justice here in Harrisonburg and in the valley. The new creation of which the resurrected Jesus is the first fruit. The new creation is a place of fair and straight dealings of honesty and truthfulness and justice. So we work for healing and restorative justice in our personal relationships and in the way our community interacts with immigrants, and in the way our government, our national government handles international relations. This is a primary Christian calling, justice. Every Christian is called to work at every level of life for a world in which reconciliation and restoration are put into practice. And by doing this, we are anticipating the day When all of creation will be put right. And we work for God's kingdom when we work for the health and the flourishing of the land. And the people who live on it. And we work for the kingdom when we work for beauty. Which is an essential and urgent job of the church. We must work to reawaken the hunger for beauty at every level. Truth, beauty, justice. This is the kingdom of God. And these are the things we must work for. We work for the, to reawaken the hunger for beauty at every level. To celebrate the goodness of creation. To ponder its brokenness. To celebrate in advance its ultimate and complete healing. And to do this, we need all the arts. We need painting and sculpting and music and dance and theater and literature. The arts are so much more than pretty decorations. They are a highway into the center of a reality that you cannot glimpse in any other way but through the arts. So I've been asking you to pray about the ways in which you will work for God's kingdom. How are you working for truth and justice and beauty? The truth and justice and beauty of which Christ, the resurrected Christ, is the first fruits. How are you going to do this? How are you going to practice resurrection? 
That is the question we must hold ourselves to in the season that we call the Easter, the Easter season. How will each of us as individuals put into practice the resurrection? How will we implement the new creation achieved by Jesus? How are we going to anticipate in our lives and our labors the ultimate renewal of all things? Each week I've pointed out ways that particular people in our church are practicing the resurrection. At the end of the last two weeks, at the end of the sermon each week, I've been laboring to fill our imaginations with the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? It's the good news of the kingdom. It's the good news that because Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and bodily raised, because of that, he is the Messiah of Israel. He is the only true Lord of the world. He is the only creator of the cosmos. And the good news is that his kingdom is here. That's the gospel. Now this morning, we're going to look at another encounter that Jesus had with his followers after his resurrection. And with this passage, we kind of turn a corner. I've been talking about what is the good news of the kingdom? What is the resurrection? What does it mean? I've been talking about ways we go about practicing, implementing the resurrection. And this morning, our passage leads us to another dimension of this subject. And it's this. How do we go about doing kingdom's work? How do we go about implementing the resurrection? And if you're a note taker, I've got two points. If you're one of those, that was my introduction. Now, point number one. Our work for the kingdom of God must be in the power of the spirit. Look with me at John chapter 21, verse 1. The passage that I've read to you just a few moments ago. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Here we see that the disciples have left Jerusalem. They've returned to their homes in Galilee. The Sea of Tiberias, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And in the next two verses, we find Peter and a few other disciples doing what they were raised to do, fishing. This is how they earned their living before Jesus ever came along. This is what they were taught to do. This is how they fed their families. They were old hands at this. They knew the sea. They knew how to fish. They knew where the fish were. They knew what was going on here. But on this particular fishing trip, they didn't catch anything. In fact, at the end of verse 3, John, the author of this, bur- this book, he constructs the sentence in a way that effectively puts the last word of the sentence in all bold, all caps, underline. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's the emphasis of the sentence. And then in verse 4, just as dawn was breaking and the sky and the sea were filling with color. Can you see it in your mind's eye? They're standing, they're stretching, they're shivering, they're feeling tired, they're ready to eat, but they've got nothing to eat. They're ready for rest. And at that moment, what happens? Jesus shows up. He's standing on the shore and he shouts out to them to give it one more try. Cast their nets on the other side in one more place. So they do, and it works. Look at the end of verse 6. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. 
What's going on here? Well, to understand what this story is about, you've got to go back one chapter. Go back to chapter 20. Look at verse 21. Here we find Jesus talking to his followers. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. So Jesus says to the disciples here, you've got a job to do. You are to work for me. You are to work for Jesus. But you cannot do what I have for you to do if you try to do it on your own. So he gives them the Holy Spirit. Now back in chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus speaking to the disciples before his crucifixion, before his resurrection. John 15, verse 5. A very famous verse. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Same word in the Greek, same construction, same emphasis, same bold, same underline. So what's going on in John 21 when it says they go to do the thing they've always done, the thing they know how to do, the thing they are skilled at. This is their profession. And it says in that verse, they caught nothing. What's going on here? What's going on is that John is giving us a story that he is telling in a particular way, with a particular set of grammar, with a particular construction of the language, in order to show us that apart from Christ, we cannot do the good works of the kingdom. So I have a question for you. Right now, in your life, are you living in a way Of prayerful dependence upon Jesus. Right now, is your life a life of prayerful dependence? Is your job something you are doing in prayerful dependence? Have you learned this lesson? This lesson that is so important, John Most scholars agree this is a second ending to John's gospel. Most people believe that John originally ended his gospel at chapter 20. I'm convinced he did. And for whatever reason, he comes along after the fact, this beautifully constructed document, and he tacks on another ending. Why? Because this is so important. Have you learned this lesson? There are millions of things that the church should be getting into. That the rulers of the world either don't bother about or don't have the resources to support. Jesus has all kinds of projects up his sleeve and is waiting for faithful followers to say their prayers. To read the signs of the times and to get busy. That's what I've been saying the last few weeks to be Easter people is to notice what needs to be doing, what needs to be done and to get on with doing it. To be Easter people is not to sit around waiting on the by and by. 
To be Easter people is to live our life here and now in this world, in the midst of all of its brokenness, implementing the achievement of the resurrection, doing the good works of the kingdom. But before we take off to work for the kingdom... That's what John, he's tacked on this other, this other ending. Before you do it, before you take off doing the works of the kingdom, there is a lesson we must learn as we listen for God's address. In this passage, we hear God telling us something. Something about working under Jesus' direction. Something about the relationship of our good works to his good kingdom. You see, it is incredibly easy to think. We have got to do it all. If we don't organize it, it won't happen. If we don't tell people the good news, they won't hear it. If we don't change the world, it won't be changed. It's an old cliche. He has no hands but our hands. That's a pile of rubbish. Whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Did he sit around waiting on us? Whose breath guided us to think and pray and love and hope? Who is the Lord of this world? We may be given the Holy Spirit to enable us to work for Jesus. But the gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be used independent of the master who breathes it out. Of course we're to work hard. Of course, we're to be organized. Of course, there is no excuse for laziness and sloppiness and half-heartedness in the kingdom of God. If it's kingdom work we're doing, we must do it with all our might. But let us have none of that nonsense about it being up to us. About poor old Jesus being unable to lift a finger Unless we lift it for him. Let's exercise that cliche from our thoughts and our thinking. Isn't God showing us in this fishing trip our radical need for prayerful dependence upon God for all of our kingdom good works? Now, I would like for you to stand in your mind's eye with the disciples in the boat. What projects? Are you laboring under now, over now? And you are not prayerfully dependent upon the one who gives us his spirit to do the good works of the kingdom. We must be a church of prayerful dependence. We must learn how to watch for the figure on the shore, to listen for his voice, and to do whatever he tells us. If not, We as a church, we as individuals, we are in danger of toiling all night and catching nothing. But if we listen afresh for the voice of Jesus and do what he says, there is no telling what this little church can do. Just yesterday. I received an email from David and Anita Cooper. David already confessed to Anita. I was going to read your email. So if, if you didn't know that, n- now I'm telling you. Here's the email. This morning as we were cleaning the banks of Black's Run along by the church parking lot. A, a woman called down to us several times. She was in the Lineweaver Apartments. 
The first couple of times were generous expressions of appreciation for our cleaning up. She asked who we were, and we replied that we were members of the Church of the Incarnation, which meets on Sundays in this nearby building. We told her the meeting time, and Anita called up an invitation to join us. She next urged that the church make ourselves known to the people in Line Weaver, suggesting that we distribute flyers in the building, and even calling down the name and the working hours and the lunch hours of the manager. We realize that plunging into an overture to the line weaver people can be seen as, quote, not knowing what we're getting into. But we can allay this fear by getting to work, digging up the necessary information. However, we cannot but think that this is the prompting of the Holy Spirit, which we cannot let sit back, sit on the back burner. Church. Could it be? That David and Anita are prayerful people. That they have been watching for the figure on the shore. That they've been listening for his voice. I think it could be. Am I certain? No. But the fear of mistaking some other voice for the voice of Jesus should never be an excuse for inaction. Who among us will lead the way in this endeavor? How long have we been talking about Lineweaver? We've been talking about it since way before we ever even moved here. What's happening? It's not up to the leadership of the church. Don't wait on the leadership of the church to do kingdom works. Don't wait on the missions committee. Don't wait on certainty. Who's going to lead the way in this? Who in our church will help us in this endeavor? Now, will we get it right? Maybe, maybe not. Could it be that this is the voice of Christ on the shore calling to us, cast your net on the other side of Black's Run? Now, that's my first point. We must work for the kingdom and the power of the spirit, which comes through prayerful dependence upon Jesus. And for my second point, we need to go back to the beginning of the passage. Back to verse 1. Read with me again. John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two others of its disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat. Now, like I said at the very beginning of our service, when I was welcoming you, make no mistake about it. In this passage, we are in the ordinariness of simple daily living. It is something that is so obvious about the passage. It is so on the surface. In our quest for deep truths, we tend to skip over this. But listen, John is writing his gospel 50 years or so after the events. John does not pad his stories with unnecessary details. He's telling us something very important. He is telling us about the presence of the risen Jesus in our ordinary lives. Too often, we have this sort of thinking where all the stuff in our day is arranged on this scale. 
And there's this hierarchy upwards from incidental, menial, manual labor like dishes and laundry and keeping house. Up to working for a paycheck. Up to the really important kingdom work. And we tend to think that mature Christians prioritize the latter. They prioritize the big, the sexy, the sacrificial, the painful, the difficult kingdom work. They prioritize their quiet time and the spiritual side of life. But the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news that the kingdom of God is here. The gospel has no patience for a Christianity that is divorced from the ordinary. John tacks this on to the end of his, of his account of Jesus' life. And this is my second point. Our work for the kingdom of God must be about the ordinary moments of living. The devil specializes. And providing us with technicolor, widescreen versions of what it means to live a full life, a meaningful life. Lots of drama and sacrifice and adventure and glamour and size. Isn't that the very temptation he gave Jesus? Throw yourself down, do the big thing. Bow to me, I will give you all of this, I'll give you the big stuff. He failed with Jesus. Jesus sent him scampering off. And to be frank, he's had considerable more success with us. The problem is that we have a spirituality without the inconvenience of creation. What I'm saying is that as we work for the kingdom of God, as we implement the achievement of Jesus in his crucifixion and his resurrection, we must have the courage to seek obscurity. We must have the courage to be ordinary. I'm saying that as we learn to be Easter people, it will be a massive mistake if we put all of this into practice in such a way that we forget the resurrection is not about the denial of the ordinary moments of living. It is about the reaffirmation of the ordinary moments of living. Read John 21. They're working, they're eating, they're cooking. It's ordinary stuff. We need the wisdom to see that our good works for the kingdom of God occur not only when we challenge the government to act with true healing and restorative justice. That is important. There's huge work we must do there. There are enormous sacrifices we must be willing to pay there. But it will be a massive problem if we restrict kingdom work to big work. We will fail to do kingdom work if we fail to see how the resurrection is about the reaffirmation of ordinary living. We need the wisdom to see how the practice of resurrection plays out in our kitchens, in our laundry rooms, in our backyards. In the ordinary moments of our life, living out Easter, the practice of resurrection begins in household and workplace. And we never graduate to higher ground. Too many Christians think that the spiritual life occurs when God rescues us from the boredom of domesticities. 
And he relieves us from the mundane. But the Christian life is the life of the ordinary. The Christian life is the life of an embrace of family and work and cooking and sewing and helping the poor and healing the sick. Menial and mundane work does not take us away from God. If so, blessed are the educated. I don't know of that beatitude anywhere in Scripture. Why is it that we've bought into this American idea that the more educated we get, the, 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 then we no longer have to do menial work. We either hire it out or we let other people's children who aren't as smart or as educated as us do it for us. That is a lie. And it's insidious. And it is profoundly polluting. Our notion of the kingdom of God. Menial and mundane work does not take us away from God. It continues the work of God through us. So my first point was our need to work for the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit by prayerful dependence upon Jesus. And I used David and Anita's email about line weaver to point us in a very practical direction at that. For my second point. The idea that we must work for the kingdom in the ordinary moments of life. I want to point out another way God is at work in the midst of our congregation. There are a group of women in our church whose vocation is homemaking. And some of them are getting together in a few weeks to read a book. That will help them grapple with concrete ways that the resurrection of Jesus informs the quotidian task of laundry and floors and dishes. How does the resurrection of Jesus help us to recognize and savor the holiness of the mundane circumstances of our daily life? If the homemakers in our midst do not develop the skillful discernment of answering that question, they will never find the spiritual refreshment they need. And thus, they will not be able to offer spiritual refreshment to their spouses and their children and the guests in their home. How does a homemaker develop the spiritual discipline of helping their children learn to build a family life around the little events? Why do we think we build family life around the grand event? We will never build a family life around grand events. Now, they're an important part, but they're not the foundation. And a grand vacation, a grand experience will never make up for an inability to know the relationship of the kingdom of God to dishes. And it's not just the homemakers. There's a tremendous need for people in every vocation To get together and to ask the question about their specific area of work. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with being a student? And let me tell you, it means it has a lot more to do with that than maintaining your purity. If that's the only thing you know about the kingdom of God and being a student, you have missed most of it. That's an important part. But the kingdom of God has a lot more to do. 
with your life than your ethical behavior and your evangelistic activity. And until you discover the relationship of your vocation, whether it's a student or a professor or an engineer or a homemaker or you're selling trucks or you're owning a business or you're making art, until you know the relationship of the two, you are in danger. You're in danger of missing out on your calling. Do you know what your calling is? It is to be the unique you God has made you to be. To love this world in the unique way he made you to love this world through your vocation. Too often Christians read the Bible as if it only contains ideas and truths. It does contain ideas and truths. But it is a book for living. Not just for thinking. All living is local. This land, this neighborhood, this job, these trees, this street, these houses, this particular work. We must develop the skills of living out the Christian faith through the particular job we have. The daily, ordinary rhythms of ordinary life with its unrelenting pressures and its deadlines and its family business and its demands on our time. The Christian faith, that's it. The Christian faith is a way of life. It is not an impregnable fortress made up of ideas. It is not a philosophy. It is not a grocery list of beliefs. I am the way. It is a way of living. The wonder of our created bodies. The incarnation of Jesus, the the bodily resurrection of Jesus has never been an easy truth. For people to swallow. We are constantly in danger. Of abstracting away from embodied life. Into spirituality. Whatever your version of that is. But human ordinariness. With our bodily fluids. And our raw emotions of anger. And disgust. And fatigue. And loneliness. It is far easier to accept God. As the creator of the majestic mountains. And the rolling seas. And the delicate wildfires. It is far easier to accept that God. Than it is the God of the resurrection. We have these deep aspirations that are native to our souls that abhor the business of diapers and debt and government taxes and domestic mundane activities. We all liked the idolatrous imagining that we were made for higher things. Do you understand? Our job is to see what needs doing in God's world and to get on with doing it. This is how we put into effect the achievement of the cross and the resurrection. And this is how Jesus is at work in the world today. Jesus puts his achievement into operation through his humans that he has rescued. It's been all too easy for people to imagine that if Jesus really is the king of the world, He would, as it were, solve everything without us. But that was never his way. Because it has never been God's way. If I had time, we'd go back to Genesis 1 and see that the original plan was for God to rule his world through us. Now, you've got to hold this intention with with our first point. 
My first point, that we can only do this in radical, prayerful dependence upon Jesus. The second point, that he still does it through us in the ordinary moments of life. We must work for the kingdom of God through prayerful dependence and through the ordinary moments of living. Let's pray.